what must I do to be saved? first person who asked that question was a Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. He probably wasn't looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. He probably wasn't even looking to be saved from his sins. He was a Philippian jailer. He had Paul and his companions in prison. They were chained to the walls. And then one night about midnight, an earthquake struck. And when it did, it tore everything loose. That means the prisoners were set loose and they got up and started to leave. It was the custom of jailers in those days to kill themselves if they lost their prisoners. And so he intended to commit suicide. There in the pitch black of midnight, the jailer thought his prisoners were gone. The only honorable thing to do was to kill oneself. Drew his sword, and before he could fall on it, he heard a voice in the darkness. It was Paul. Paul said, Sir, don't do this. We're all still here. He ordered that the lights be brought in, and when he could finally get his wherewithal, he went up before Paul, got down in front of him, and said, what must I do to be saved? He probably wanted to be saved only from the power that caused the earthquake. One doesn't need to be a devoutly religious person to know that if somebody just moved the earth and busted all of these people free, they're probably a force to be reckoned with. And if they're not on your side, you need to be saved. The word literally means rescued. How do I get rescued from this imposing force? But the Philippian jailer's question could be written across the history of the world. Every generation at one time in their life, has tried to answer the question of what one has to do in order to be saved. Thousands of years ago, in the days of Homer and the Odyssey, to be saved, one needed to perform acts of valor, heroic acts, that one hoped would propel you and then follow you into the life to come. You think of the gladiator where the hero says, what we do in this life follows us or echoes in eternity. To the philosophers, to be saved was to be rid of the impending chaos, the disorder that was always around us. To do it, one needed to right themselves internally. That is, to live a certain set of virtues, which changed from philosopher to philosopher, though a lot of overlap that would create the good, the true, the beautiful life inside. And as one was able to establish this kind of an interior life, one was saved. To the Eastern view, it was to get in touch with the God who is in you. There's some new age in that you almost hear. And by finding the God that is in us, who always accepts us, one is saved. And to be a modern person today for the last couple of hundred years... To be saved is to fall into the arms of power or science and technology. You see, people always feel, whenever they're alive, that there are things that they can't control. You can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow, and what happens by the end of the day could really throw your life into chaos. And how are you going to stop that? Well, you're not. So you look to something to guarantee that you're going to be okay. And the answer in today's age is science and technology or military or power of some sort. By pushing our horizons out, by defying the laws that define us, we can be saved. 
When I was a kid, the words on the screen were on the wall of my Sunday school class, what must I do to be saved? And I couldn't understand why, because we knew the answer to this. We didn't know why the world was so messed up about it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your house. Why are you making this so difficult? But when I started to read through the Bible, even as a child, I noticed that there were people that were said to be saved that weren't Christians, either before or after they were saved. And then when you get into the Gospels, you discover that there are people who are asking to be saved, and they are not saved. The thief on the cross, for instance. He said, if you be the Son of God, save yourself and us. He was not saved. And then there are other people who didn't ask to be saved are saved. Like the other thief on the cross. He just says, just remember me. And he ends up getting saved. So when you're reading this, you're thinking, God, you got this backwards here. You just saved the wrong dude. You read the Gospels and you find out there's people that don't believe that much, end up getting saved. The man whose son is possessed by a demon in Mark chapter 9 says, I believe, but not much. Help my unbelief. And he ends up getting what he wants. And then there are other people who believe a ton, and they don't get what they want. The Pharisees, for instance, were better believers than most of us in something, and they didn't get what they wanted. Yeah, you're tracking me. So by the time you read through the Gospels, you find out that people are in fact getting saved. It's just not who you thought it was. It's often somebody else. And if you're open about this, you realize that maybe your Sunday school answer, you know, you just bow your head and say this prayer and then Jesus will forgive your sins and make you a child of God. You understand that that fits a certain set of scriptures, but it doesn't translate into tons of other scriptures. In other words, if that's your definition of what it means to be saved, it's not that you're wrong. It's that your definition's too small. It's too narrow. What must I do to be saved is a question written across every culture at every time in history. This is not a religious experience. This is a basic human need. It starts to change the way you think about it. When you get into the Gospels, the first time the word salvation is ever used is before Jesus is born. Six months before, to be exact. An old dude named John the Baptist has a child. He holds the baby up and he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come and redeemed his people. Watch it. He has raised up a strong salvation. There's the word. A salvation from our enemies and from all who hate us. And why did he do this, Zechariah? To show mercy to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant so that we could serve Him with fear and holiness and righteousness 
all of our days. In fact, when John holds the baby up, he says, this child will teach them salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Verse 77, Luke chapter 1. Six months later, Jesus is born, and according to Matthew 121, he is told by the Holy Spirit to name him Jesus, for he shall save, there's the word, his people from their sins. But if I'm reading this right, salvation apparently has already begun, because what Zechariah said was that God was creating a salvation. No, that's not right. God was remembering a salvation that he made with his people long ago. In other words, when John the Baptist is born or Jesus appears, salvation doesn't just happen right then. Salvation is the fulfillment of a promise made to our fathers long ago. Are you tracking? So it's rooted in the Old Testament. Now, when you get into the Old Testament and you start thinking about what it means to be saved... There is one story that keeps recurring. Doesn't matter when you're alive in the Old Testament. Doesn't matter what your personal example is, what you came through. When anyone in the Old Testament sat down to talk about salvation, they all referred to one story. It's the Exodus. Every generation talked about the Exodus. The time when God took his people, split the sea, marched them through, sent them into the promised land. They said, that's what it means to be saved. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you are told in the future when your children should ask, what's the meaning of these stipulations and laws? Your kids ever ask you that? Mine did. You must tell them. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. You hear it? But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with amazing power. Before our eyes, the Lord did miraculous signs and wonders, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt. He brought us out of Egypt so that He could give us this land. And so He commanded us to obey these laws and to fear Him for our own prosperity and for our own well-being. Well, that was said by Moses just when they got into the promised land. A few years later, Moses is dead and his successor, Joshua, comes on the scene. And guess what? It's a different day with different names, but it's the same story. At the end of Joshua chapter 24, you read, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought terrible plagues on Egypt, and afterward I brought you out as free people. The Egyptians chased after you, and I put darkness between you and them. And I brought the sea crashing down upon them. I gave you land you didn't work for I gave you cities you did not build I gave you vineyards and olive groves for food and you did not plant them now honor the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly you hear it same theme different names several years later fast forward a couple hundred years into Psalm 136 and it's the same thing Give thanks to God. He is the God of gods. He opened the sea. He led His people through the sea. He crashed the waters on the enemy. And God has marched us into the promised land. 
Same story. The point is this. In the Old Testament, whenever someone talked about salvation, they had different ways of saying it, but there was one dominant story that they were always talking about, and it was the story when God took his people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. Almost a hundred times in the Old Testament, you'll hear these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's as if you are never to forget that. Remember, this is your story. The Lord your God has brought you out of Egypt. Okay, now tell us your story. You hear it? Because this is a day when everyone says, I have to find my story. No, you have one in the Old Testament. You just have different ways of talking about it. But that's the story. So, when I read the Old Testament, and I read the story of Exodus... I run into all kinds of problems with my, uh, shall I say, evangelical view of what it means to be saved. I mean, I had this. I had this down, you guys. If you want to be saved, you bow your head, you say this prayer, and then you become a child of God. Your sins are forgiven. You're going to go to heaven. And then I read Exodus. And in Exodus, one is saved not so much from a sin or a habit. You are saved from a predicament. In Exodus, you are not saved from what you did. You are saved from what someone did to you. So... Exodus does not portray Egypt as a sin. It port Remember, God led them there. They're in Egypt because that's where God sent them in Genesis. But they have gotten into something that they can't get out of. And they don't know how to manage it. And it's becoming oppressive and hard for them. So you must not think of Egypt as a sin. You think of it as a predicament that is overwhelming and depressive. And you need to get out. But you don't know how to do it. And so in Exodus, one is not so much forgiven as they are delivered. And when you are delivered, it's not that God gives you a fresh start. Not an exodus. He gives you a new life. Exodus is a resurrection. God is creating a new kind of people on the other side of the sea. Are you tracking? Or am I just having fun alone up here? You say, I mean, this stands a lot of your stuff on its head, doesn't it? Hang on. And so in Exodus, 
one is never saved in order to become the people of God. One already is the people of God, and that's why they are saved. You, you see, in Exodus, you can't be saved unless you are the people of God. Because remember, what God is doing is keeping a promise that he made with your ancestors years ago. He's not winging it here. He made a promise 100 years ago or more, and he's saying, it's time for me to do that because you're in the line of fire. So in Exodus, Christians need to be saved. This is a beautiful, if unsettling, truth because it, if you talk to Christians today, they will frequently insist that they don't need to be saved because they were saved and that's what makes them the people of God. And if you tell a Christian that he needs to be saved, he will resist it because he thinks he already is saved and that's what made him the people of God. But if you say to him, I know you're the people of God, therefore you need to be saved... He probably won't like it. We'll stop at that. Which leads to the next thing. In Exodus, salvation doesn't occur in a moment. It takes 40 years. (laughs) If salvation was simply the parting of the Red Sea, the book would end at chapter 14. There are, however, 26 more chapters that come after the Red Sea. And there are 12 chapters that come right before the Red Sea. It's quiet in here. You're either bored, thinking, or mad. I hope you're thinking. So in Exodus, salvation is not simply the parting of the Red Sea. Salvation is the whole 40 years. And salvation is for the people of God. So, what does salvation look like in Exodus? This is important to me because I think when God performs His deeds in Exodus, this is not only uh, one of His finest hours, you guys. And it was a really good movie, you have to admit. This was a pattern of the way God saves people all the time. In other words, if you want to figure out what's happening in your life right now, you want to figure out how the Bible applies to your life. No, 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 no. Oh, it applies, believe me. The question is where in the story of the Bible does your life land? I guarantee it. If you look at the story of Exodus, you will see a pattern emerge for salvation. And then you'll look at yourself and say, wait a second, that is exactly what God is doing with me right now. And I'm a Christian. 
It begins, I'll show you a map. It's my Google map. It begins when God remembers. God sees. You're captive up in the land of Goshen. It was once a beautiful place, and then all of a sudden things went south. Now you are stuck as a slave in the brickyards. And there is nothing that you can do to get out. This is all that you've known for the last 400 years. And suddenly, nobody knows why, but in Exodus chapter 2, 23, and 24, it says, the people of Israel cried out and their cries went up to the Lord and God heard them. And God remembered. And God saw them. And God was concerned about them. And I want to point out, nobody in the brickyard knew that these changes has occurred in God. The changes were all in heaven. Nobody on earth knew it. But when something changes in heaven, it's only a matter of time. The world will catch up with it. It always does. But when God remembers something and said, that's what I'm going to do, it's done. It may take a while, but it's done. So everything begins when God looks at your condition and says, I remember. I see him. I'm concerned. I'm going to move. So the first thing God does is to disentangle us from the other gods that are around us. Because you see, when you lived in Exodus or in Egypt for 400 years, and the name of God is never mentioned in connection with you in the first two chapters, then you don't really have another way of explaining the world except through the gods that are around you. Those are the gods of the Egyptians. So you may not like them, but the way that the Egyptians see the world is probably the way that you have come to see the world. It's probably the things that you depend on for success, it's the thing you fear and the things that you trust. We may not admit to it as Christians. We certainly won't. But Christians everywhere have many gods. They have many different ways of explaining success and things that they fear. So while we may say we have but one God, we have lots of explanations for life, and sometimes they are strangely similar to the explanations of everybody else around us. Are you tracking with me right now? What I'm saying is, God sees us, and the moment He sees us and says, I'm going to move in their life, He goes through the arduous, agonizing process of disentangling Christians from false religious systems that have soaked into them over the years. When he does this, he performs a mighty act which is like a defining moment. 
He splits open something that is standing between us and the promised land. And this looks different for lots of people. So it's not that the answers that I received as a child were wrong. It's that they were just one way of describing the act of God splitting a sea to bring his people through it. There will be a defining miracle in our lives where God separates us from the life that we hated. And just like Egypt, it will always come after us. This miracle of God has to be so powerful and so overwhelming. It simply crushes those things that would haunt us, chase us. And after God does this in chapter 14, He will bring us out into the wilderness where he can test us. See, if you thought salvation happened at the parting of the Red Sea, oh, it's just getting interesting now because in the wilderness, God tests his people to see what's in them. The word literally means to prove. In other words, God knows what's in them. He simply uses the test to get it out. And so when you're in the wilderness, you don't have answers. The, 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 I mean, the stuff you learned in Sunday school, it doesn't work out here. All you have is a dry place where it feels like prayer is not getting answered and there is no food and you're not going to make it. You have no answers. You only have courage and trust and patience it's the only way to survive out here. And if this has not happened to you yet, and I'm judging by the age of some of you, it probably hasn't. It will. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there will come a dark night of the soul for you. Or it may feel to you as though God is not only allowing these things to happen, He's behind it. In, in, in what Kierkegaard called the midnight hour, you'll have to decide what your faith is really made of out here. Here's the good news. You'll discover things out here that will blow your mind. God will say things to you out here that you can't tell anyone. And when you meet God in the wilderness... I'm, I'm telling you, something will happen between you and him. You heard it read up here when she was reading the scripture. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his way known to them. In other words, the Lord says things to you he doesn't say to everybody. Psalm 25, 14, NIV, if you want the scorecard. It happens to people who stay in the wilderness. Are you tracking with me?
And what happens is when you get saved and you go through the Red Sea and you think everything's going to be fine, the reason people get stuck is because they have false expectations. They get led to a time of testing and they think, my goodness, I thought I was saved. What's up with all this kind of stuff? Wasn't supposed to be this way. Well, the truth of the matter is in Exodus, it is supposed to be this way. That's what comes next. After God tests you, chapter 15, 16, 17, and 18, then God will call you. Chapter 19, even though all of the world is mine, I could have anybody I wanted, I want you. That's a very rough translation. What he literally said in chapter 19, verses 5 and 6 is, even though all the earth is mine, you will be for me a treasured possession, a holy nation, a priesthood of people. If you hated the desert, you're going to love this. <laughs> but my friend, you can't have this until the desert. When I was 19 years old, I wanted to be called. I did not want to go through the desert. But the truth of the matter is, if you're called to preach, you have nothing to say until you've been here. So whatever you want God to do with your life, you guys, I want, I want that for you. I really do. I look at our church and I see so many people with rich talent and abilities. And I think to myself, God, if you just call those people and cut them loose, man, we got an army here every Sunday. We could do a lot of good for your kingdom. But what I see so often is people who want to start here. They don't want to start here. And they never had this. And uh, after God calls you, then he dwells with you. Ain't this a great story? When the book started... God was absent, he was distant, he was far off. And when the book of Exodus ends, God is smack dab in the middle of his people. He's intertwined with them. <laughs> it's better than the movie, ain't it? I mean, isn't it? I have one more observation, and then I'll, I'll be done. I... I, I we talked to people after the first two hours, and I know their head was about ready to explode. So I'll be as brief as I, I can be here. Here's the last observation. Salvation in the book of Exodus is never so much being saved from something. It's being saved to something. Every passage I showed you has two parts. I am the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt and I am the Lord your God who led you in to the promised land. You see it? 
Now, now understand, the longer you've been in Egypt, the less you understand the promised land. You'll hear me stand up here and cite verses that sound an awful lot like the promised land. And you'll say, oh, I know what that means. Well, the fact of the matter is, you don't know what that means. Man, I don't know what that means. And I'm the dude saying it. So when I stand up and say, Jesus says, I have come to give you life and give it more abundantly. You say, oh, I know what that means. And when Jesus says, I have come that your joy may be full. You say, oh, I know what that means. Oh, no, you don't. Because he says it from the promised land, but you hear it in Egypt. And so everything he says, you spin it. It's not your fault. (laughs) I'm not picking on us. I'm just saying when God speaks from the promised land, he means more than we know because he is speaking from a completely different place. It's a whole different context. I think if you look around our church and in our city, in your neighborhood or in your dorm or in your offices or maybe in your own life, you will see a generation of people who are stuck in Egypt. They have lost their desire. They do not have a holy imagination. The only thing they can desire is things that are in front of them. They have taken every word and redefined it for Egypt. They think normal means what everybody else is doing. (laughs) Yeah, in Egypt it does. But in the promised land, it means the thing you were made to do. People in slavery will speak of being free because they interpret freedom as the power to do whatever they want. But the problem is whenever they do what they want, they don't like what they get. They end up backing into a corner. They run out of options. They feel stuck. They feel like a part of them was just given away. They feel trapped. They feel ashamed. They feel guilty. They feel diminished. And yet they run around and say, I can do what I want. And you want to say, yeah, but dude, look at you. Are you liking what you get? And so they have lost all joy and they have traded it for pleasure. And as long as a good time was had, I think the most discouraging part of this condition is is the loss of a horizon. there, 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 there is no future anymore. And so I think the condition of people that were in Egypt the first time, I think all they wanted, listen to me, was a better version of Egypt. I don't think they really wanted out. I think they just wanted the pain to go away. This is why whenever they were led out and they ran into problems in the wilderness, the first thing they said was, man, we should have go back to Egypt. And you're like, dude, 
I thought you hated Egypt. Now you're talking about going back? Well, you see, just because they wanted to leave it didn't mean they were buying into the vision of the promised land. It just means they wanted to be rid of whatever crap they'd gotten themselves into. Are you tracking? That's exactly what we do. We talk about God saving us, but when God saves us, He has the promised land in mind. He has a whole list of things about us that He envisions someday being true. And all we want is for the pain to stop. We want God to just take us out of the situation we are in and then everything will be fine again. <laughs> and for God, it is not fine until you are there. Now you're going to have to leave there. If you want to go there. but just because you're praying to get out of here doesn't mean you're all that interested in going there. And until you get real interested in going there, you're going to have this tug of war inside of you all of your life. I wish I'd have known this as a young man because every sermon I had, every sermon I preached was about quitting sin, quitting sin, quitting sin. Dad, gummit, somebody call me to a better life. I'll quit it when you can show me something more exciting. But give me a vision for something more interesting than the thing you keep wanting me to quit. Are you tracking? Or am I just, okay. Until you are ready for that, you still need to be saved. Bow your heads, please. What might God intend for you? What might God want for you? And what have you settled for? Maybe you said, it's not that bad. It's all part of me. It's who I am. It's what I was made for. I can do this. And so your prayers are all about sin management or damage control or being happy. But I'm not asking you this. I'm asking you, what might God still want for you? Are you open to that? All I want from you today is to just say yes to whatever that is. Now, I know you may not know what that is, or at least you may not understand it, but will you just today just say yes? Will you say, Lord, by salvation you meant way more than I thought? Yes.